the Empire Podcast this week, we go country but not western with the wild rose herself, Jessie Buckley. I don't think anybody's going to understand us by the end of this. Sorry, what was that? So what did you say? <laughs> yeah, or as they say in Ireland, huh? <laughs> All that and more on the movie podcast that has had its world rocked this week by two things. One, the revelation that Joe Russo, co-director of Avengers Endgame, is a Liverpool fan. And <gasps> two, those pictures of Jude Law on the beach. <laughs> I mean, blimey. Wow. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues, two, count them, two, two colleagues of such lethal cunning. We are, of course, joined by our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. I mean, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about the Pope now after those Jude Law pictures. I was, of course, filming the young Pope in Tidy Whities and, you know, a whole lot of personal training. It's not called the new Pope, I believe. The new Pope, the I new apologize. Pope. Yep. Yes. Or the nude Pope, as some wag said on <laughs> hey. Twitter. But anyway, let's fill people in. Let's introduce Ben Travis first. Yes, hi, Ben. Um, Hello. Hi, Ben. You all right, Ben? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Also, um, spending a lot of time thinking about the uh, the pilf, as I feel like the internet <laughs> is about to dub him. <laughs> Fat I can. <laughs> no. Fat, Fat I can. No, no. Anyway, yes. Hello, Ben. Hello. So should we, let's put these pictures in context, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about the important thing, which is Joe Russo supports Liverpool. Uh, but yeah. So Jude Law, he's on the beach, yes. earning twenty percent, and there he is with yes, his with, with be- nips out and everything. With yeah, I mean he's been working out. Obviously, he's a healthy, yeah. clean living man. He's taking good care of himself, and he's uh, scantily clad, uh, oh. frankly. But he's also in defence of, uh-huh. like, uh, not being sexist. There are no. scantily clad women all around him throwing yes. beach balls. No, were less. there? I hadn't noticed. Genuinely, I hadn't noticed. really, <laughs> were there? Okay, that's cool. Yeah, there were. That's cool. Yeah. Well done. Do you reckon those tighty whities are they sort of like papally? Are they official papal wear? <laughs> Obviously, you have the, the the gowns and the and the pointy hat. Are there trunks oh, yeah. for those eventualities? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe some maybe some priests can write in and not tell us. That would be super good. If that they could would be just an ecumenical matter. Definitely not let us know. That would be super. So that caused quite the stir, quite the old kerfuffle. And it's the best advertisement, frankly, for that show that I've seen so far. <laughs> so there you go. Tune in to the new Pope whenever it hits a screen near you yes. at some point to see what the hell is going on in that shot. What's he doing? It's a dream sequence? What's it, happening? I mean, it could be a dream sequence, or it's a very odd show anyway, so it mm. could be reality, let's be honest. Okie dokie. Uh, but the second thing mm. that rocked my world this week is the revelation that uh, Joe Russo, co-director of Avengers Endgame, does indeed support Liverpool Football Club, who, I don't know if you're aware of this... I think everyone is, Chris. ...is also my team. Yes, I think everyone knows that. I think yeah. people who have never met you know that. I think this... I was on the fence vis-a-vis Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. 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 This has put me over the top, I think. So you now think it might be a good film? It might be good. <laughs> it's got a shot. As people listen to this, it's less than two weeks away. Less That's than extremely weeks. exciting. In fact, as we record this, it's two weeks today. I know. As two we record weeks. this, it's two weeks today until Avengers Endgame is, uh, opens in the UK. 15 days until you get it in the States. Ha ha ha, suck it, Americans. Um, it is also, shall we say... Less than 14 days until some of us see the film. It's fine. We're keeping it together. We're totally yeah. fine. It's cool. Yes. It's cool. We're absolutely 103% professional. Mm. Uh, very, very exciting. And in fact, this is my last 
stint hosting the podcast. Uh, I'm not going to do one of those things where I go, oh, I'm not hosting the podcast, and then I, I turn up and you're hosting the podcast and then I'm in the corner. I, I think you need to say until at some point in the sentence, otherwise people are going to freak out. This is not your last podcast. Oh, well, no, 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 no. Until? No, but what a way to go out with Joe Russo supporting Liverpool and Jude Law getting his nips out on the beach. I mean, that's that's like, I've, 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 I've had dreams like that. Anyway, this is my last podcast until there we go. Avengers Endgame comes out. Uh, because I'm going to Hell for the next 11 days as of this weekend. So, Helen, you're going to be holding the fort. So I had said to people on the Twitter machines that they should ask me, uh, ask us, not me, but ask us questions. And because it's the last time I'll be on the podcast before Endgame comes out, it's our last chance to to tackle Endgame-related questions and theories and whatnot. Speculation. Wild and uninformed speculation. Yes, indeed. So here we go. I've got loads and loads of questions. And we're going to race through them as quickly as we can. Okay. All right, let's give it a go. Usually we just do one question. For the day, we're throwing caution to the wind. At Phil underscore Ferg asks, do you think Adam from Guardians of the Galaxy 2 will appear in Endgame? Adam Warlock, this would be. Adam Warlock. Who's teased in one of the post-credit stings to Guardians 2. Um, I think no. I think they're going to save him for Guardians 3. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, I entirely agree with Helen. I don't know what okay. I have to add there. I think as well, there's already so many characters and so many things going on. I feel like it doesn't need Adam Warlock. That mm. can wait. Yeah. Yes. This, now is not the time to introduce a major new character. But the reason, of course, why people might think that he would sure. be involved is because he has previous with the Infinity Stones and with Thanos and but, all that sort of stuff. I mean, like Squirrel Girl has Squirrel. defeated Thanos in the past and nobody's mm-hmm. talking about her turning up, are they? So mm-hmm. I'm just saying... That's fair. Uh, okay, here's a good one from the Chocolate Patriots at Moans Mats. And uh, they ask, because I don't know Moans Mats, I guess it's Matt, but they ask, what would you say is the most important film in the Infinity Saga? I was rewatching Age of Ultron and I do feel it's a strong contender, one of the weakest films, mm, mm. but confirms Infinity Stones is key to future films and leads to Sokovia Accords. So in terms of setting up a lot of pieces. Yeah, because a lot of people have been asking us recently what films you should rewatch in the run-up to Avengers Endgame. Sure. Now, I don't know if you've been following my film recommendation thread on Twitter. Chris Hewitt's Film of the Day, 2019. Do follow or more likely mute that hashtag <laughs> to see what film I recommend every day. It's the same film every day, Chris. It's always Infinity War. This is true. This is very, very true. But um, so that's one of the ones. That's that one of the ones you should watch. Re-watch. Yes, watch Avengers: <laughs> Infinity War. But yeah, Age of Ultron. All the Avengers movies. I think all the mm-hmm. Avengers movies. That makes sense. I think Civil War is going to play into the immense amount of semi-suppressed emotion that I'm hoping for between Cap and Tony. And first Guardians, not only because it introduces the Guardians, but that is the first film as well where it really starts to delve into what the stones are, and you have. Thanos turning up for like a few scenes in that as well so mm-hmm. that feels like a mm-hmm. pretty pivotal before they really focused on him and decided on what he looks like yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a step forward from the uh Avengers non-assemble uh post credit <laughs> sting but yeah they hadn't quite figured out that design yet had they no they hadn't hmm. maybe they'll get it right one day <laughs> any more for any more in terms of the important films in the MCU i would say probably you yeah. should start with iron man Okay. Okay. Then move on right? to the Incredible Hulk. I know a lot of people diss the Incredible Hulk, but I think it's important in reminding people who General Thunderbolt Ross is, and of course who Bruce Banner is. Fantastic. And then I would say uh-huh. um, Iron Man Two. Now I That's know again, bold and controversial, Helen. It is, but it, it does establish a lot of detail about Shield and Nick Fury and everything else, which might be relevant. And Coulson. 
You can't exactly. watch Avengers without knowing who Coulson is, and Coulson's in those f- first couple of films. Exactly. All right, so after that, I would probably go, top of my head, Thor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thor. And then yeah. I've got to get a mention in for my favourite, Captain America, the first Avenger. Captain America, the first Avenger. But then you need the first Avengers when they all assemble. It just makes sense. It does. So it you'd probably sense. follow Cap with Avengers. You would, you would probably yeah. follow Cap with <laughs> Avengers. But then it's been a really long time since you watched any Iron Man, so... You need some Tony. You need some Iron Man 3. You're Jones in for Tony. And you need to see how he was affected by the events of, yeah. of Avengers. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. Iron I would Man absolutely so. Iron Man 3, the best Iron Man film. That is correct, Ben. Well done. Um, after that, I would probably go... Hang on, hang on. Oh, yeah. Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I was going to say be. Guardians of the Galaxy, but you want to go back to uh, yeah, Captain America, Yeah, I America, think Captain America, Winter America, the Winter Soldier, and then okay. Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy, because you know what? It's got a great soundtrack. It really does. And at this point, you probably need to start tapping your toes a little bit. And, you know, okay. and, and Winter Soldier, because it's the best one. Oh, yeah, and they're both in- integral hmm. to the plot. Stuff. I feel like people may see what we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> alright we'll have to speed it up alright after that then you got to do Avengers Age of Ultron because that's very very important sure, as the and then, questioner so rightly says yeah and it's epic so you need a, like an amuse-bouche mm-hmm. uh, a palate cleanser so that's Ant-Man so after that I'll go for Ant-Man mm-hmm. then after that I would go for Captain America Civil War epic need more cap at that point yeah yeah need more Hawkeye got and there's, lo- there's like <laughs> loads of Hawkeye in there and you know just I mean he's in it for like 3 minutes and 47 seconds something like that so you got Captain America Civil War then after that go for Doctor Strange and this kind of like weird and eccentric mm-hmm. and psychedelic mm-hmm. and what what the hell is going on sure so you need that in your life uh, don't you you definitely do and then you need Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 yep and, and then, then you need Thor Ragnarok right no Spider-Man Homecoming <gasps> Spider-Man Homecoming you're right that's what you need right. then you need Thor Ragnarok yep that's important it Very is important because it leads directly into Avengers and uh, Infinity Game and End War <laughs> and all this sort of stuff then I'd go Black Panther Okay. Avengers Infinity War. Yeah. Chris Hewitt's film of the day, 2019. Yeah. And then I would go Ant-Man and the Wasp. I know much maligned in this room, but it's, hey, it's a bit of a, it's an Elmore Lenardian blast. <laughs> and then and then I would go... Hang on, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Sisters are doing it for themselves. And I'd finish off with Avengers Endgame. That's what I would do. That's it's a bold strategy. Let's Those see if it pays off. are the 21 films I think you should catch up with before you see Avengers Endgame. All right, just a couple more questions. Uh, Peter Turner asks, what in the world could Marvel ever do in the future that could be more of a massive event than Endgame? And I'd like to see a Logan-style 18-rated Iron Man movie where it gets really sweary and violent. No. <laughs> just no. As we're going to talk about a bit later in the podcast, I think going sweary and violent uh, for its own sake is not necessarily always a winning strategy. Fuck no. <laughs> I mean, in terms of what Marvel can do next to outdo Endgame, I think whatever that's going to be, it's going to be so many years down the line that the reason Endgame is such a big deal is because it's paying off on such a long kind of um, amount of storytelling. So yeah. I think we can't even picture what that's going to be yet because we need to be invested in Doctor Strange and Black Panther and Captain Marvel to the same extent as we are to the uh, OG Avengers this time. I mean, assuming that they even survive you know mm. we don't know right now as Maybe. Chadwick Boseman keeps telling people he's dead I'm dead super dead <laughs> a few people have said what will we do if Endgame sucks <laughs> you know what we made it through this far we can cope it'll be painful and difficult is it bad that I really don't think it will I genuinely feel like that team have our trust for a reason so I mean, if you looked into sort of 14 million possible futures, I can't imagine that many of them where Endgame ends up being disappointing. I can imagine a few. Mm. I mean, you within know, 14 million, like yeah. two. Because you've got to imagine there's one where it's directed by like a, a singing dog or mm-hmm. something. 
Or McG. Yeah, or McG. Because <laughs> the singing dog was unavailable. <laughs> Second choice. Yeah. Hey, McG was an original producer on Supernatural. Thank you very much. Okay, all right. Uh, at A underscore Albazuras asks, if a genie told you you could put an end to Brexit, but in exchange, you could never watch Endgame, oh, would you boy. do it? Ooh. I can't believe you've actually taken this long to think about it. Yes, I would end Brexit. I mean, yes, I would. I would. I would. Come on. I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just like, are people allowed to like explain Endgame to me? Like talk me through it? Are they allowed to tell me what happened? Can I read the Wikipedia spoiler page? I don't know. It's the will of the people, Helen. Whatever they say. (laughs) We put it to the vote. Oh, God. 52% of the people say no. Then you're shit out of luck. Uh, And then finally, Christine Rogers, uh, whose Twitter handle is... At writing freak eighty eight asks, at what point does Steve die? One hour in, <gasps> two hours in, two hours and forty five minutes in. Discuss. I refuse to engage with this. I refuse to sanction this buffoonery. That's what I do. <laughs> I think it is going to be a sort of Groundhog Day style movie where the poor fella dies twenty five times. And each time in a slightly more pathetic way. Like one, he does a charity thing to raise money for survivors of the snap and he, he gets into a bathtub full of baked beans. He bangs his head and he drowns slowly in a bathtub full of baked beans. Okay, I know you're joking, but I'm genuinely prepared for that because I've, <laughs> I've watched a Supernatural episode called The Mystery Spot. Oh God, there's always a Supernatural There is there's, always a Supernatural There's always a Donald episode. Trump tweet yeah. and there's always a Supernatural episode. Genuinely, Dean Winchester dies about a hundred times in it. So mm-hmm. I have I have been through that worst case scenario. Okay, I am serene. I can cope. All right. and Steve is going to live forever. I like your thinking. Uh, and of course, the outsider is the the explosion in the dildo factory that I thought would do for Nick Fury's eye in Captain Marvel. It didn't. That's still on the table. That is still on the table. And folks. it's always going to stay on the table, far away from the screen. You have to ask yourself what sort of screenwriting hopes you would have to go through in order to get Steve Rogers into a dildo factory, but I'm sure it would be germane to the plot. To be honest, if Bucky was in there, he would do anything for Bucky. Yeah. If he had to... What's Bucky doing in a dildo factory? You ask him. He he would have some kind of answer for you. He would claim that he had been brainwashed and that someone had said a series of random words to him and he'd ended up there. (laughs) Anyway, that's it for the Avengers Endgame theories and question marathon. And then, uh, yeah, I won't be answering any more questions from anyone for more for two more weeks. Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Amber podcast and treat it with the respect it or they deserve, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. We're on Twitter, of course, as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are Helen won't see them over the next couple of weeks. That's right. We're also yes. on Facebook as uh, Empire Magazine. Facebook us. No one, fa- no one no ever does. sends in questions no. to Facebook. We never check. The, yeah, never. I mean, they we, might be. <laughs> we literally never check. Uh, and you can email us as well. I do check that every single day. Podcast at empireonline.com. Right, should we get into some movie news? Yes, let's. Some lovely, lovely movie news. Can we talk about the Grease thing? Grease is apparently getting a prequel called Summer Loving. Or at least John August, the, the screenwriter, is working on a script yes. for such a film, which would explain the first connection between Danny and Sandy on their summer holidays. Tell me more. Oh, God, why did we set him up for that? Oh, <laughs> I'm God. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, there was nothing I could do. I, that's all there is, really, I'll be honest. And Tell me more. What the hell's taken them so long? I mean, that's not really the question that springs to mind. My, my question, my question <laughs> is simpler. My question is why. <laughs> my question is, what does this really 
give us that we need in the world and i think it's genuinely worth asking because greece worked right because okay it's got catchy songs and stuff but it was made in the 70s and it was set in the 50s and it had that kind of nostalgic yeah. kick for people who vaguely remembered that time yeah. and then it also had it was a little bit boundary pushing compared to how the 50s were you know in terms of talking about condoms and talking about you know teen pregnancy and things like that which people might not have had in teen movies yeah. 20 years before so it kind of offered something as well as just the catchy songs i'm not clear mm-hmm. on what it offers us now because i feel like today's teenagers are so divorced from the teenagers of the 1950s they're so much cooler and so much more interesting and so much less hidebound by these very, very strict gender roles that the Pink Ladies and the T-Birds have mm-hmm. that I don't see what there is for any young person to connect to in that film. So it feels to me like they're making this film for people our age and older. Quite possibly. And I don't see how it isn't creepy in that case that we're watching these two teenagers mess about on a beach. And also, You've I don't... You've given this way more thought than I had. I know, and I, but I can't help thinking how bad an idea is. And the thing is as well, like the whole song is a kind of he said, she said It tells thing. the tale. But the, the tale that they're telling is that the joke of the whole song, the point of the entire thing is that Danny is making shit up mm-hmm. and Sandy is telling the sad but boring truth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you mess with that in any way, it doesn't work at all. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. I just don't see what there is there to work with. Maybe they'll find that. But, but, yeah. but maybe John August, who is a screenwriting guru, yeah, um, I love big fish. I love big fish as well. I'm just saying. I love huge chips, big fish, <laughs> massive peas. Oh, you mean the movie Big I Fish? I did. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I I have affection for that as well. But uh, yeah, he he knows what he's doing, and he um, he clearly has an idea for this. I imagine they didn't just go to him. Maybe he pitched this. Who knows? But what I'm saying really? is, I'm surprised that it's taken them so long because Greece is wildly popular, mm. and Greece too, less so. But Gre- yeah, Greece too. Maybe why it is not. <laughs> has taken so long. There are some Santa do's and some Santa don'ts when you when it comes to <laughs> making terrible nineteen eighties musicals. Hey, but hey, I, just on behalf of Cat Brown, formerly of this parish, mm-hmm. I have to say some people love Greece too. Yeah, so absolutely. But you know, when I heard this 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 news, I thought, you know what, I've got chills. Are they multiplying? No, not oh, really. Well, that's probably but, uh, just as well. But there we go. Well, uh, well, uh, well. Uh, let's move on to the next next story. <laughs> What else is happening? Ben, you look like a man who's got movie news on your mind. I do. Uh, The Lion King dropped a new trailer, Mm. which um, is still kind of blagging my head that those are not real animals. This is probably the most photo real. (laughs) Like, is this... Are we sure this isn't just like a David Attenborough documentary that they're slightly augmenting to make it into a Disney film? (laughs) Because some of those shots... Like, I even believe that Timon and Pumbaa are skipping through the jungle together and singing... Mm. Hakuna Matata. But doesn't that make it weird? Mm. That yeah, it is so it's photo a bit real. weird. Yeah. It is. But do you know what I have to say? The the John Favreau Jungle Book kind of worked for me. I, yeah. I, I do love yeah. the original, but it had enough of a different tone. It had that sort of almost adventure chase movie kind of thing going on. And I kind of trust John Favreau to do something here. I prefer the Disney remakes when they are a little bit more removed from the originals. Yeah. I personally really liked Dumbo because mm-hmm. it kind of took those yeah, those sure leaps and those swerves. So, yeah, hopefully. I mean, it, it's that mix, isn't it, that all the shots in that trailer are things that you see in the classic Jungle Book. But it, I don't know, it has a different feel and a different tone. And that voice cast is off the charts. 
crazy good. Donald Glover, Beyonce, Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen as Timon and Pumbaa, which is genius casting. Mm -hmm. John Oliver as Zazu. Mm -hmm. Chiwetel Ejiofor as Scar. Scar, Mm -hmm. Who doesn't look as scary as you think he might. Mm -hmm. Nor does he sound as scary. And this is the thing, that Jeremy Irons is uh, genuinely as as Scar as one of the great, Mm -hmm. creepy, bad guy voices. And Chiwetel Ejiofor is an amazing actor, but I don't know whether he has... The voice. Mm-hmm. I quite liked rival. his just richness of tone in that voice. Yeah. The, the bit that really got me though was was hearing James Earl Jones as Mufasa. Yes. There's only one Mufasa, and, and he is it. And that 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 was the bit of the trailer that, that got me. I'm just I'm not hugely excited about this otherwise. But I wasn't excited mm-hmm. about the Jungle Book, and I really enjoyed it. So um, yeah. Also, it is going to give us. Can you feel the love tonight by Beyonce featuring Childish Gambino? So I'm in. <laughs> I'm absolutely in. Speaking of Gambino, by the way, oh, okay. uh, the morning after you listen to this, if you listen to this on Friday, uh, on Saturday morning, Donald Glover is dropping a new film That's clumsy. called Guava Island. Yeah, hopefully he picks it up at some point. No, it's coming to Amazon Studios uh, or Amazon Prime. It's an Amazon film. That's uh, Donald Glover and Rihanna and Letitia Wright. And yeah, it's called Guava Island. He's also headlining Coachella this weekend, so it kind of mm-hmm. all ties in. It's from the director of the absolutely incredible This Is America video and loads of episodes of um, Atlanta, a guy called Hiro Murai. And we kind of know nothing about it at this point, but in the days after you listen to this, it will be available to stream on Amazon Prime, a new Donald Glover film kind of dropping out of the ether. So, an actual film. Awesome. An actual film. And I imagine there will be some kind of music component or an album tie-in, but it's a, yeah, a feature film project. Good Lord, he makes me feel like an underachiever. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people do, in fairness, but particularly him. Yeah, he is like one of the most hyphenated (laughs) multi-hyphenates, which stick that on his his Wikipedia page. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. Can I talk about some some sad news? Oh. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Some sad news. For me, anyway. That... After, I think, 13 years together as a creative partnership, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell are, are going their separate ways. Yeah, that is that is sad, actually. Has there, has there been any reason why, given? I think that old chat, they're just growing apart creatively a little bit, maybe. Uh, this is, you know, they made an announcement last week, so uh, they've been working together for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, Ferrell, obviously, as one of the, the stars of SNL at the time he was working on it, and McKay was the head writer at SNL, and they just clicked, absolutely clicked. Then, obviously, they've made... Tons of movies together, Anchorman, Anchorman 2, Talladega Nights, The Other Guys, Step Brothers. And they've got a production company together as well called Gary Sanchez, which has produced lots of really good comedies mm-hmm. and some less good comedies. <laughs> and they were together, they pioneered Funny or Die, the, the website as well. But yeah, if you look at the way McKay's career is going, I mean, they're both political guys. They did that uh, George Bush show on Broadway a few mm-hmm. years ago where Farrell played Bush. But McKay's films recently have been The Big Short and Feist, and they've moved away from the humour of Anchorman and, and Step Brothers and films like that. And Farrell maybe is still in that, in that direction. Yeah. yeah. So maybe they've just gone, look, okay, I'm, I'm over here doing what I'm doing. You're over here doing what you're doing. I'm going to form this company. You're going to form this company. But they've, they've said they're going to remain great friends. And hopefully they'll work together again as director and star down the line. Yeah, definitely. I love them together. But yeah, a single tear rolled down my cheek when I heard that news. Very yeah. sad. We should have a fucking Catalina wine mixer in their honour. It's a fucking so Catalina wine mixer. A fucking Catalina wine mixer. 
Absolutely. Have to stick the explicit braid in this one this week, won't we? <laughs> oh, um, well. I have better news that might cheer you up, Chris. Are they back together again? That was quick. No, no, different, different news, but it might still cheer you. I know how much you adore Hawkeye. And there came the news this week that Disney Plus, the streaming service that Disney is about to launch, will also have a Hawkeye limited series. They're obviously lining up a whole heap of limited series of sort of Avengers spin-offs, and this joins that selection. Yeah. Woohoo. I mean, this is interesting. There's part of me that wishes that they hadn't announced any of this stuff pre-Endgame. Mm. Because even if... Like, they can't all be prequels, right? I mean, some of them might be prequels. Some of these people... Like, there's a Loki series, there's a Scarlet Witch and the Vision series, there's a uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier series, and now there's this Hawkeye series. All those people pretty much are dead as things stand. <laughs> so... Hawkeye isn't. Hawkeye isn't. Hawkeye isn't. Totally so fine. Three prequels and a sequel. Three That's prequels fine. and a sequel. So you know, Hawkeye. So <laughs> they've been so intent on preserving the mystery and keeping the spoilers uh, out of this movie. I mean, the hashtag for Endgame is "Don't spoil the Endgame." Last year it was Thanos demands your silence, and then they go. I mean, they haven't announced films. They haven't officially announced films, mm. but going Hawkeye. There's a Hawkeye thing, and then there's some other TV shows with people that you last saw being reduced to their component parts so I don't know hopefully these aren't spoilers hopefully it'll all be fine but it's also interesting from a Jeremy Renner standpoint because I always got the impression that he didn't really enjoy being in the MCU that much and that's just that's just my observation now you know I've only interviewed him a couple of times and he was totally fine I don't know whether you've spoken to him maybe you spoke to him on Civil War I I don't know no he was one of the few I didn't get um no, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think he's been underserved uh, generally yeah. by the MCU, with the exception of maybe the Age of Ultron family stuff, which I thought was really nicely handled. Yes. Um, but as a character and as an actor, he has so much potential that I'm actually quite intrigued and interested to see what they do with this. And I hope that they actually use a lot of that potential that they never have find time for in the screen um, and give it give it to him here. I'm also genuinely quite happy that they, they specifically said in this story that it would have a lower budget obviously than, than some of the films. And the reason I'm happy about that is I just want these characters to hang out and talk which can be done fairly cheaply you know. Um, so I feel like that would be my ideal Avengers kind of spin-offs. And if, if it's literally just eight episodes of Jeremy Renner hanging out as Hawkeye yes. I'm here for it. I think as well, because um, he's only ever really appeared in the big team-up movies when there is the biggest crisis in the universe going down that they all have to stop. I think actually a series that maybe focuses on a sense of scale that really works for Mm. Hawkeye could give that character a chance to shine in a way that he hasn't always i mean he's uh, they poke fun at it in in age of ultron don't they they're kind of none of this makes sense i've got a bow and arrow but the city it, is poking po- yeah it's poking sense at the at the truth which is like he isn't really doing much compared to everyone else so i think it'd be really good to see that character operating on a on a different scale for once uh yeah absolutely right. if they if they base it on the brilliant uh matt fraction and david adger uh storylines from a few years ago if you haven't picked up there's an amazing run of Hawkeye solo comics where he basically buys and becomes the landlord of a building with all the the attendant problems and attendant tenants and uh, it's really really cool and really funny and offbeat and solves those problems with arrows some okay I'm in for it Um, here's another suggestion it's a little bit offbeat see what you think you may remember a few years ago there was something called the Hawkeye Project which saw a series of sort of fan artists pose Hawkeye in the same kind of over-sexualized poses that the female superheroes 
often adopted on on comic book covers and so on. And in the same kind of skimpy versions of his costume that the female superheroes sometimes wore. Why not eight hours of the Hawkeye project in real life? Are you objectifying men, Helen? No, but that's the point, know, isn't it? I know, it's clever. I, I you know. See, the, the, Perhaps he could run down the beach in his tidy whities <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? Apparently everyone's doing it now. So. I'm doing even it after Pope, this. Even the Pope. Did you guys get my WhatsApp uh, group invite to that? No. No, no, no I did not. No. Are you sure? That is, that is Check your phones. I'm just my, you've deleted WhatsApp and thrown mm. my phone in I'm the Thames. No, I'm going I'm to resend this to you. Just uh, You've got your phones there. I'm just going to double check that the, ah, the message comes my through. My phone has stopped working. <laughs> my phone. I've accidentally poured acid to my phone. Oh, my God. Who knew? A uh, couple more things to talk about very, very quickly. Dave Batista has joined the cast of Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, which has got me all kinds of excited. Mm. And that's the heist movie set in Las Vegas where a bunch of badass mercenaries break into the walled off Las Vegas in the midst of this fast zombie apocalypse type thing. And they go, we don't give a shit about this because we're badasses and we're led by Dave Batista, presumably. So bring it on, yeah. zombies. I bet the zombies bring it on. Yeah, I bet Dave Batista brings it on her. Mm, yeah. let's hope for his sake post Endgame right now that movie is the thing that just gives me going yes please yes <laughs> Zack Snyder zombies Dave Bautista yes please um, anything else oh yes some uh, more Suicide Squad news Suicide Squad 2 is now of course the Suicide Squad with James Gunn at the helm and this week it was confirmed that Fiola Davis is going to return as Amanda Waller, who is the politician who assembled the team in the first movie and was basically <laughs> the bad guy of the movie in many, many ways. And uh, Idris Elba is not going to be playing Deadshot. He is going to be in the movie, but he's going to be playing a different character, but they haven't announced who yet. And Jai Courtney will return as Captain Boomerang. So cautiously optimistic about this movie. Yeah, I'm just I'm just a bit confused about what it is because it feels like there are so many conflicting reports of it's not really a sequel, it is a total, total reboot except for there are going to be returning characters. Mm-hmm. I have no idea whether they're going to find maybe some almost Spider-Verse-y way of explaining how these worlds are kind of totally separate but they have these connecting characters. I think they've given up. It'll be a soft reboot. It's yeah. sort of semi-sequel but it's effectively the start of something new. Yeah. And James Gunn is involved, obviously, as writer-director, and that's exciting. Do you think there's a possibility this movie might suffer just because people will automatically now start assuming this is the movie that he's making before Guardians 3? You know what I mean? And that this movie will suffer almost invidiously in comparison to Guardians 3 because this is the one, oh, well, just once we get this movie out of the way, then he can make the movie that he Mm. really wants to make. To be honest, I think that expectations of a new Suicide Squad were so low that his involvement can still only be... (laughs) (laughs) Singing Dog would direct it. Yeah, could only be a plus. So I, I think actually it will it will get people excited. Okay. Can I can I mention one final piece of news? Of course, very you can, quickly. Helen. In the Heights, there's news. In um, the Heights, yes, which is of course. <laughs> thank you. It's, that's how it goes. In oh, the Heights. Do, 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 do. This is of course the Lin Manuel Miranda musical that he wrote uh, before Hamilton, and actually before Bring It On as well. But that's neither here nor there. It's being filmed by John M. Cho, uh, who obviously has lots of experience with dance movies, which is good. And we now know that Jimmy Smits is going to be on board playing Nina's dad, Kevin. He runs the taxi office that employs Benny, and Mm -hmm. it's an important role in the middle of the cast, and Jimmy Smits is in it, so hooray! I didn't know Jimmy Smits could sing. I don't even care if he sings. He's great, and I want him in the film. He's got a really good, sad song, that character as well. He has a very heartbreaking song quite early on. So um, Mm. it'll be interesting to see him in kind of ballady mode. Can't wait. Did you see this thing this week where um, Rachel Segler, who Spielberg has cast to play Maria in his West Side Story, is doing her final school play this week? 
That is amazing, isn't it? Is it the alien school play? (laughs) (laughs) I hope it is. I hope it is. Have you seen that Kirsten Bell also has a Disney Plus show which is going to try and reunite the casts of school plays? Kirsten Bell? Yeah. Wow. But like reunite the cast of school plays like 10 or 20 years later and they have to put on their school play again? Shut the front door. Right. This sounds hilarious to me and I will 100% be watching it. Kirsten Bell, if you're listening, and I know you are, I have two suggestions for you. One, reunite the cast of the 1995 Bambridge Academy production of Oliver. The person who played Fagin in that is willing to reprise the role. Oh my goodness! I He's played Oliver in Oliver. Did you, no way! Did you play? Yeah. Did you play anyone you play in Nancy? Oliver? I was. You, I was never. Played. I was never in Oliver. No. Sorry. But you, you, you can. You, you got I the could pipes do, I, and the singing I'll do. and the singing. Sure. I, I feel an Empire production coming on. I'm reviewing the situation. <laughs> oh. That's for sure. Oh. And uh, recently, my my friends and I we've been getting together, uh, old university uh, chums, and uh, we've been talking about putting on Twelve Angry Men. Uh, which we did at university, but this time we're actually almost age appropriate, <laughs> as opposed to like just putting grey talcum powder in your hair and, and you know pretending to be a bit daughtery. And I played juror number four, the uh, E.G. Marshall character oh, okay. in the uh, Sydney Lumet film. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Kristen Bell, yeah, get in touch. As you know, my DMs are open. I'm sure she's she'll be always sliding, she's sliding always, into your DMs. Anyway, I can't honestly. Oh, it's Bell again. Oh no. Uh, so yeah, do that. We had a primary school production of Cats, and I can only imagine how horrible that oh, was. <laughs> Cats st- already terrible, plus a bunch of what sub eleven year olds who Helen, can't sing. Helen, do you want to say it or shall I? Probably better than the film. Oh no! There we go. Every day is Christmas. Every Eve. day is Christmas. Every Eve. day is Christmas. We Eve. can't wait to see Cats. I, I genuinely can't wait, can't to, wait see to see Cats. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so, uh, it'd be like uh, Endgame if I was here for Endgame, which I won't be, but, you know, I'd yeah. be queuing up from three o'clock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd be just there. We Litter there. tray, everything. The, oh. the whole kitten caboodle. That is it. Huffing catnip the whole time. <laughs> That's going to be amazing. Oh, it's going to be so terrible. <laughs> terribly, great. Terribly, terribly entertaining. Terribly good. So awfully great. I cannot wait to see it. Okay. That is it for movie news. And it is time to tell you that this week's show is once again sponsored by the wonderful people at The Economist. The legendary magazine is over 170 years old, another 30 years to go, and it'll be getting a second telegram from the Queen, the Queen herself. Um, Who does she get a telegram from if she turns 100? I think she sends one to herself. She sent one to her mum, didn't she? Just a standard self-addressed envelope. (laughs) So it is to the Queen. Yay me! Uh, and once again, we have an incredible offer for Empire Podcast listeners, a free, free print issue of The Economist. This is an incredible offer, unlocking a veritable treasure trove of articles about economics, politics, entertainment, and much, much more. I like to gravitate towards the science stuff, because the science stuff contains the really freaky, deaky stuff that gets my movie brain uh, working overtime. And one article that caught my eye in the most recent edition, dated April 6th, Fact Fans, tells of how scientists have discovered further evidence of the giant meteor strike that wiped out the dinosaurs, eventually ushered in the era of mankind, and ultimately led to the Empire podcast. So, thank you, asteroid. (laughs) In the appropriately named Hell Creek Formation of Tanis in North Dakota, a group of scientists have unearthed a 1.3 metre thick sedimentary layer that was, says the article, 
dumped in just one day. And it's loaded with the bodies of fish, and they all face in the same direction. And that indicates they were rapidly buried in a cataclysmic event. And some of the fossils even have evidence of having swallowed fragments of molten glass and quartz generated in the intense heat of the blast. This is Helen, I know, I can see that this is blowing your mind. This is, yeah. Um, and one of the students involved in the discovery, Robert De Palma, really? amazing name, <laughs> yes, genuinely, theorises that the impact was so immense that it formed standing waves or psycho waves in every large body of water across the planet as tall as 100 metres. As tall as 100 metres. So I looked Ooh. up what standing waves were and they're really cool, undulating, kind of really freaky-deaky waves that are in bodies of water that are isolated and closed off from everything else. So imagine those, but 100 metres tall wow. and just flipping around the place. Bodie would go nuts for it. And that explains why fish were found in Tanis many hundreds of miles from the big old crater itself in Mexico and explains why they were affected in such a way. So that blew my mind. It's exciting stuff. And I'm just imagining now a film about the meteor impact, a film with a 100 metre tall standing waves Hollywood Kristen Bell get in touch just drop me a DM and I will happily write that script for you so self-sacrificing I'm very selfless that way so anyway if you want to get your hands on a free print copy of The Economist and you want to stimulate your mind grapes with all kinds of the good stuff it couldn't be simpler just text the word movies to the following number 78070 movies 78070 and soon you will be enriching and enlarging your brain. Maybe physically. Can we promise that? That you will actually your brain no. will become bigger? No. Chris, as your lawyer, no. No, we can't do that. But we can say movies. 78070 to get your free print copy of The Economist. And once again, thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Okay, so time now for this week's guest. And Jesse Buckley burst onto the scene as an actor a few, well, last year, in fact, with the brilliant British movie Beast. But she's been around for a while as a, a singer and an actor. Came second, in fact, in the BBC's talent competition, I Do Anything. Does this mean we could get her uh-huh. into our production of Oliver? Yes, because that sought a new Nancy for a West End production of Oliver. And I'm Fagin. And Ben is Oliver. And you could be Mrs. Sowerbury. Wait, what? Well, Nancy's now taken. I'm afraid there weren't that many great roles for women in that play. <laughs> Unless, of course, we, we can we can we can switch it up a little bit. You That's could it. be just Sowerbury, the gaunt, grim under. Okay, uh, <laughs> Bill Sykes. Bill Sykes, I'll take. You could be Bill Sykes, the intimidating. <laughs> anyway, we'll find a part for you. It's totally fine. Cheers. So, uh, Jesse Buckley is in freaking credible in this week's Wild Rose where she plays a Glaswegian woman who has just been released from prison and wants to fulfil her dream, her destiny of being a country, not country and western, a country singer. And she's tremendous. And Jessie Buckley is Irish, like myself and Helen, mm-hmm. but her accent in this is impeccable, as far as I could tell. I've spent three days in Glasgow, but it sounded pretty damn good to me. <laughs> and I was delighted that before she went off to make a film with Charlie Kaufman in New York, that she took time out of her schedule to come into this very studio to sit in that very chair where Ben is right now, Whoa. and we had a good old natter. And um, perhaps we talk about Oliver in this as well. But anyway, here we go. The great Jesse Buckley. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the star of Wild Rose, Wild Rose herself, Jesse Buckley. How are you? I'm very good. Good, good, good. <laughs> Just uh, talking about being both from the the Emerald Isle, so to speak, and just wondering how thick our accents are going to get during this next 20 minutes or so. (laughs) I don't think anybody's going to understand us by the end of this. Sorry, what was that? (laughs) Sorry, what did you say? (laughs) I'm terribly sorry. Or as they say in Ireland, huh? (laughs) (laughs) 
Have you have you found holding on to your accent easy, difficult? Have you found that English people try and disabuse you of certain uh, notions that you have? For example, whenever I came to England for the first time, uh, I referred to films as films, obviously, because that's what they are. Yeah. And then I got told by a rather uppity housemate of mine, oh, excuse me, Chris, I think you'll find the films. Films. And now That is the one word that has changed for me. Uh And whenever I go back, my Auntie Mary always makes the point, she's like, have you been in the films recently? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Auntie Mary, I have been in the films. (laughs) All the way over in London. (laughs) But that's the only anglicised word I've taken. I'm actually pretty surprised I've managed to hold on to my accent. And if I go back to Kerry within... Like an hour, I am completely on on. I'm not able to be understood. Subtitles. <laughs> yeah, I have to bring kind of a, you know, interpreter back to London with me. <laughs> but accents are are you know obviously they're a huge part of a of an actor's arsenal. And uh, we, I saw Wild Rose the other night. I saw it with my wife, and your Glaswegian accent that is is pretty damn tricksy. It's pretty damn tricksy. So after the after the film when you came on, you did a performance yeah. and you started speaking to the, the crowd. And my wife turned to me and went, she's Irish? <laughs> there could be no greater compliment. Yeah. It's funny because I hardly ever use my own accent. Like, I think I've only used it once in a play. And yeah, a lot of people come like think I'm either very English or very something else. <laughs> and then they meet me and they're like, oh my God, you're very Irish. I mean, very Irish. <laughs> I mean, uh, was the accent in Wild Rose tricky? Do you find it easy, you know, easy to come by accents or is it something you have to work on? God, I'm def- I, yeah, I worked my socks off on it. I think as well because it was like so intrinsic to the character and the, ident- you know, the sense of identity of Glasgow and that like rhythm and directness and raw energy that Glaswegians have. Like mm. it was just a real kind of thing which helped me navigate where this character was coming from so I worked on it for months and months and then based myself basically in Glasgow for the month beforehand and irreverently went around to different news agents hoping I'd get away with asking for a pack of fags (laughs) (laughs) and that they wouldn't bat an eyelid and uh, yeah So how'd you go? I got my pack of fags (laughs) You don't even smoke. It's just, it's I know. Just, I was just. <laughs> you just got loads of fags now. Glaswegian fags, <laughs> very exclusive. <laughs> That's amazing. So after a while, you passed muster. You found that everything was was going tickety poo. Yeah. Well, I think once you start, I don't actually stay in accent when I'm shooting. Okay. I thought I might for this, but I um. It's important for me to like um, come back and be normal so that I can keep relating normally to people. Okay. <laughs> I personally just like, I know my space where I am when I'm on set and then off it, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I work. I have no idea why. <laughs> no, no, if it works, it works. Uh, I remember reading a story once about Robert Carlyle because I think he was very, method may be the wrong word, but he was very committed to staying in an accent Back in the day, I'm not sure sure if he would be these days, but he was doing Cracker. He was doing a Scouse accent on oh, Cracker. Yeah. And uh, someone called him up at three in the morning and he answered in a Scouse accent. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's dedication. That is. It's funny, when I'm with like Scottish friends now, like Nicole Taylor, who writes mm. the script, I do find that all of a sudden I kind of put in little Glasgowisms into my chat with her. Like, be like, <laughs> oh, you're, you know, a wee. Wee kind of ends up being injected into my sentences <laughs> for no reason other than I just want to be Glaswegian for five minutes. 
that's what acting is, isn't it? You, know, you, just, yeah. you get a chance to take a holiday every day. Yeah. Just be someone else, even for just five yeah, minutes. Yeah. But in this in this movie, I mean, you're you're acting for the most part opposite Julie Walters, who you know, Christ is a is a legend. Powerhouse. Uh, yeah. And I don't think there's an accent on this planet that's, that that she can't do. But I yeah. don't think there's anything she can't do. To be uh, honest, I think, I think that yeah. And she's bloody lovely as well. So it's like. <laughs> So the two and she people. lives on a farm. I want to live on a farm. It sounds excellent. Oh, you can live on a farm. I know. I think that's the plan. That's, that's, yeah, that's in your power. Yeah. You could do that right now. You could go, you know, live on a farm right now. Uh, what was the Julie Walters experience like for you? Apart from the fact that she's so, like, she's just toxic, isn't she? <laughs> oh, just awful, I never want to see awful. her ever again. Um, oh, she's just, I mean, like, you kind of dream about working with somebody like, that and you kind of you hope that they're going to be everything that you dreamed about when you meet them and you get to work with them and she is just everything and more and she's so down to earth she's so committed to all the right things about what this job should be about Mm. and she's doesn't come at it with any ego or with any kind of power trip she's really just open and and it makes it just so easy to just be in a scene with her because it doesn't feel like you're acting you know and we really needed to like have that openness between each other because Mm. the relationship is quite um it's complex you know mother and daughter relationship Mm. with all the colors that it exposes to you as a character and you as a person and she just was so available and lovely and generous and challenging and like it made me want to come into work every day and give her everything that I could mm. more out of fear that I would <laughs> show her up and you know um, but I feel incredibly lucky to have worked with her she just is she's um, someone you look at and go I'd like to be like you when I grow up <laughs> Oh, you, you know, you're not far off because, you know, you are you know, a bit like Julie is. Uh, Julie. I've never met <laughs> Never met Julie. Uh, Dame Julie. Yeah. Uh, you know, you are the old multi-threat, as they as they say, because this movie showcases your, your, your singing. And that's something that obviously has been a huge part of your, your career and life. I mean, uh, have you been looking for something like this, for a film role like this that would allow you to do both, you know, to do both? Or was this just kind of serendipitous in a way? I don't really look for things. They I just think, fall into your lap in a way? or Well, it, it, no, not necessarily. Like, it's not something that has just come like that in my life. You know, mm. I've moved over here when I was 17 and I've done everything from selling cereal in Borough Market to doing theatre to doing jazz and dirty clubs around London. Like, it's, there, it's nothing's been handed to me and I never, ever would expect that to be entitled to, to be good at this or mm. to... Get, just get a, a script in my lap but mm. um, I don't know where but it comes from but I have a, a a trust in my belly that stories come to you at certain points in your life and you kind of meet stories when you're ready to meet them and um, I want to be surprised and I want to be in a way with what I look for I suppose is not necessarily specific things but I want something that shocks me and distorts uh-huh. my sense of the world and yeah. makes me look at the world differently and with this you know I'd worked with Tom Harper before and I loved working with him and it's really rare that you get a creative relationship where 
you know, you feel like you're you, there is a, a baseline trust there, but also you respect each other and in, are inspired by each other and push each other. And he could have asked me to lie down on a train track and have been like, yeah, absolutely no problem. Where are we going? And what time is the tr- next train? And he brought it to me and yeah, and that was it. It was kind of. What did he say? Uh, when he said, "Do you want? Do you want a pint?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> keep, keep talking. Keep talking. This, this sounds good. And then, well, he said he had been sent a script. He wasn't going to tell me what it was. He wanted me to read it, but he didn't want to do it if I didn't do it. Wow. So that was it. That's pressure. Isn't it? I mean, like you've got to read the script. I'm sure he's lying. <laughs> It's just kind of mass manipulation as per like. Um, but the script was, you know, Nicole Taylor is just mm. an incredible real writer. Yes. And um, she is so unafraid to go into the like core of quite uncomfortable things in people, you know, and, and qualities that we often in film and in TV and in theatre try to gloss over and sheen and especially leading female roles. Mm-hmm. There still is like an archetype in film of like making them glamorous or like and she just is unafraid of that. She wants to get in deeper and darker and yeah. um, and, and release the foibles that make human beings human. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is exactly what's at that, you know, heart of Rosalind mm. and, and the script is whatever, whatever any of those women are going through, they're coming from a place of their own struggle, mm. which is, um, yeah, an incredible gift <laughs> to yeah. be able to, uh, well, you learn a lot about yourself from those things. That's the gift. What did you learn uh, from this one? <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> um... I suppose it's what I learned was that it's 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 hard to want something for yourself mm-hmm. and that takes a, a lot of courage and risk and consequence and um, falling off the edge of the cliff. But uh, I suppose what I learned, Rosalind had that tenacity and belief which unnerved me and also brought me along. Even within the music, like I learned a lot about myself and and what I want to keep trying reaching for with the music, you know, and working those with those amazing musicians like Neil McCall and Chris Vatellari, or a drummer and Ben Nichols, our bass player, and Stuart Nesbitt, who's our dobro player, mm. is they um they're all looking for something truthful in that moment, and we were able to like record all the music live along with the singing on set so that it meant that each moment was truthful and alive and we were all trying to create an energy which was adding into a scene. Uh, Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, the relationship (laughs) between Rosalind and her mother is complicated and Rosalind's complicated. Yeah. And she's (laughs) it's fascinating just how far this character and how how far Nicole and Tom and yourself are willing to kind of push the audience's tolerance and sympathy almost in a way like the stuff that she does the stuff she pulls the stunts she pulls and but at the heart of it all you get this sense that this is a character that has genuine guilt and genuine feelings as well that drive everything that she does you can absolutely see yeah, yeah. everything she does has a reason yeah yeah and like at the beginning 
it's hard to get on side with her because you're like, uh, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got two kids. Yeah. You're being completely irresponsible. You're acting selfishly. But I think from what you said is that like none of those choices come without a cost for her. Yeah. And she just has she hasn't worked out quite yet how to make both those things blend with each other in, in her life and, and she's figuring that out as she go, goes along. She's young, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've definitely, I'm still making, <laughs> doing stuff like that. <laughs> still plenty of mistakes to be made along the way but uh, we were just talking beforehand, you, you were saying that uh, Kerr Mode is in your immediate future uh, and this movie, I don't want to give away too much but this movie features a cameo from another legendary BBC uh, <laughs> jockey, uh, Whispering Bob Harris. Uh, what was that like? Oh, God, I love Bob. I like, whether he likes or not, I feel like I've adopted him as a kind of <laughs> grandfather in my life. And he, like, a few months ago, his family were just so bloody lovely, like, inviting me down just for a fish pie to their house out really? in Oxford. So I just, like, on an afternoon, just got the train down to his place and he picked me up and bet Nielsen Chapman was down doing one of his um, Under the Apple Tree Yard wow. sessions and yeah. we all sat around and had fish pie and talked about country music. You know, listening to him talk about music and about what moves him in music and like, and what incredible m- musicians and artists and, and writers and creators, what they, uh, they don't take their talent for granted and they don't take what they have to say for granted and like you go watch someone like Paul Simon and he's bloody levitating by the end of the gig because (laughs) you know he's creating new worlds with his words and with his music and each word and lyric and like line of a story has a poignancy and a point and Um, and Bob is such like an understanding of what that takes and where people have to go with that and yeah it was you know as well I'm not like a singer. I'm not a country singer. So it was bloody terrifying. <laughs> and you're like, Bob's in the house, guys. <laughs> no, everybody stay calm. And I'm like having a bloody panic attack in the corner going, oh my God, he's going to find me out. Like actually the king of country is in the building and he's going to find me out. Oh my God. But he's been really, really lovely. Your singing's incredible in the film. And uh, was singing in a way your first love? Was that something that, was that where it all began for you really? And then... Yeah, I think it was actually. Like music is such a massive part of my life. I don't think there's a day when I don't listen to music. Uh-huh. And I use it all the time in work. Like I always make playlists of different kind of genres and composers whenever I, I'm like working on a script. And, and my mom's a harpist and a singer. And my dad is like, um, you know, self-taught musician and a poet. And music was always like around in our house and kind of that way of expressing was something which was kind of respected and nurtured in our house. And I like my youngest memory is listening to my mom sing and being in complete awe of like <laughs> how she was moving. Like she and it, yeah. this would just be in her like town hall where she'd have like American students over the summer and I'd be in the corner and seeing people's faces literally shift through the power of like her singing. And I, I think like music is magic like that. And it's not some thing that we communicate with each other every day with you know and yet we all universally find a dialogue with it or like and it's not even in your head it's like in your heart and your gut and all of a sudden you're like in a corner (laughs) crying your eyes out oh god 
But that certainly seems to be the experience you have. I mean, having seen a couple of performances of, uh, of yours now, that you do get into it. You know, it is something that seems to, it does seem to capture you. Yeah, it does. Like, yeah. and it always takes me by surprise because I don't, I don't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, well, I feel like I have to go into a certain place to tell the stories of these songs, you know, and, and I, I don't even know. It's not like I go in before the performance and go, OK, tonight I'm going to think about that and blah, blah, blah. I just it takes me as well. Mm. And uh, sometimes after it, it's kind of a bit vulnerable, like it's. um, Yeah, it costs me, yeah, but okay. it's also like I want it to and I want yeah, to yeah, give yeah. it to people and yeah. I want uh I want to have that experience with music and I want to have that experience with scripts and I want to have that experience with characters where it, it takes something from out of me and, and gives me so much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So in many ways, this is, this role is the motherload, this film is the motherload in a way. This this ticks all three boxes <laughs> in a way, which is, yeah, which is cool. Yeah, I'm fucked after this film. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> Nicole Taylor has basically written me out of working for the next, like, rest of my life, basically. I don't know what I'm going to do after No, I don't know. I've got, I've got a feeling she's written you into working for the next decade or so. But this is this is, uh, this is obviously really, really cool for you. And uh, going back to the idea of music as well and how big a part of, of your life has been. You mentioned jazz or you've grown up you know, singing jazz in, in London and you're not... A huge country fan necessarily or you, you probably are now you could probably quote chapter <laughs> first but so um, what's the main calling for you what's what's the uh, oh I have no idea if, if you had a Spotify you know thing and it was a genre Jesse Bucky genre well all that's on my Spotify now is bloody country, country <laughs> I no, no, my no, just country got, western just country no, country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I nearly made that mistake you're taking the piss I know <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> um uh, there's not one like yeah. it, honestly I um, I love it all yeah like at the moment I'm listening to Oliver Arnold's I love listening to orchestras and I love listening to I don't know I'm like just found kind of Bob Dylan for the first time in my life I always thought found him a bit whiny and now I'm like oh my god he's fucking brilliant <laughs> like, <laughs> guys have you met this he's really up and coming I think he's going to be huge <laughs> Um, yeah because I have to ask you I've got to let you go in a second here but uh, there was uh, a TV talent show in your in your past as well <laughs> I'd do anything no no, 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 no <laughs> hang on a second here now um, because you know I think I know something of what, what I'm speaking about here as well Jesse because uh, I once played Fagin <laughs> in my school it? play <laughs> in my school play but here's the thing Fagin and Nancy don't have a song together I don't think so therefore we can't do it. We can't, you know, but what was that experience like for you? We of, could. Like, well, we could, but it would be, you know, it would be ripping it up. I wouldn't um, want to put anyone to show <laughs> My Fagin was so bad, by the way. It was so my mum, my mum taped it uh, and used to play it back. She used to watch it in the wee. Small you learn the, the best things from the worst things that you've done. <laughs> Believe so me, I've done a lot of bad things yeah. in my life. Um, <laughs> anyway, we won't talk about that now. Nope, <laughs> in case nope, somebody nope. tries and drags up the incriminating evidence. <laughs> um, do you know what? Like, I look back at that time and I can't. A, it feels like another life. Like. Yeah. It was 11 years ago now and I was 17 and I'd taken a year out of school because 
I wasn't very well and I like just needed some time at home and I ended up in London in that year and ended up on this show and for me I was so ignorant to the whole like rigmarole of it mm. like for me it was pure raw like oh my god I'm getting to do what I thought would take 10 million years to even be part of I think I was just like going from moment to moment and I, I didn't really have an expectation of it and mm. um, I was really like lucky you know in lots of ways that for some reason people <laughs> seem to like me <laughs> <laughs> as I flayed like some kind of crazed horse across the stage <laughs> oh god <laughs> but I like I look back and I'm really proud of myself that I did that like at that age it's quite a big deal to put yourself in that position and I think my ignorance was my saving grace because it was just pu purely coming from love of singing and yeah. and love of wanting to be part of this mad circus of a family that I just that I still love you know yeah and there is a rawness there which now I always want to I always want to find that like there are so many people who sheen themselves up and become mechanical actors or um, you've got to keep putting yourself out of your comfort zone. And I think I'd like look back at that 17 year old Jessie and, and tell her, don't be so hard on yourself, but like, well done. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Christ almighty. Yeah. And I guess, us, you know, there, there's that there's that weird thing that that kind of what if because you, you came second and, and I do anything, but had you won, it may not have set you off in the path that brought you here. Not to this room. Not you, know, you wouldn't be sitting there going, man, <laughs> man, I'm not doing the Empire podcast. My life is empty. <laughs> but it brings you, it brings you ultimately, it brings you to Beast. It brings you to Wild Rose. It brings you to, you know, to the, the stuff you're doing in the future. Yeah. I mean, we've got no control over our life, really. Like, yeah. who knows? Like, I could have done it and I could have ended up here. But yeah. I always say what's meant for you doesn't pass you by. And you just got to go into everything with as much dignity as you can. Try and learn something from it. Never expect anything and just um, surprise yourself and everyone else around you. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Fagan once said, I'm reviewing the situation. Uh. I'm not going to do the voice. Dear God, I'm not going to do the voice. <laughs> once this goes, once we turn down the mics, we can have a oh, dance. <laughs> oh, that was even worse. My dancing was even worse. Not as bad as mine. <laughs> I don't think I'll be doing a film any time soon about a dancer. I can tell you that much for nothing. Are you in comfort zone? Um, well, what's, what's next for you? Uh, what's being thrown your way? Really fun and terrifying things. <laughs> Can you elaborate? I can't quite yet. Ah, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Well, next time, next time, come back next here. <laughs> and maybe we'll bust out the old Nancy Vegan duet and see what happens. Yeah. Brilliant. Jesse Buckley, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. So that was Jesse Buckley there. Absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed also Wild Rose. But Helen here is going to tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yes, so this is uh, Jessie Buckley as Rosalyn Harlan. Uh, she's just been released from prison. She is, uh, you know, moving back home. Her mum, who's played by Julie Walters, has been taking care of, of Rosalyn's two kids. But now, understandably, says, okay, you're back. It's your job to look after your children. Uh, And meanwhile, Rose herself is absolutely focused on trying to launch her career as a country singer. And that's Mm -hmm. basically the conflict of the film. She is so concerned with this dream that, you know, she doesn't want to kind of reconnect with these kids. And there's this sort of tension in her life between her family responsibilities and her, you know, her hopes and aspirations. Mm -hmm. And it's about her attempts... Well, no, it's about her complete lack of attempt initially to resolve this conflict, but it's about her growing recognition that there is a conflict here and that she needs to figure out what her, what she really wants out of her life. It's an astonishing story. It was written by Nicole Taylor, who you know grew up in Glasgow, went to the Grand Old Op- Opry in Glasgow to listen to country music, you know, all the time. Knows this kind of story really well. She also wrote the stunning Three Girls. If you saw that on TV last year, she's an amazing screenwriter. Um, but she really gets into the the heart of this character and, and the idea that you know it's not as simple as just following your dreams it's not as easy as all these kind of pat phrases that we see on kind of instagram pictures of sunsets there is there is life to be dealt with as well there are responsibilities to be sort of negotiated and 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 considered and it's not just as simple as you know i need to get to nashville and then i'll be a star there's there's other stuff going on in life I mean, phenomenal performances from from Jesse Buckley and, mm-hmm. and Julie Walters, as you yeah. would expect. But I don't think there's really a false note in in any of the actors in this film. Yeah, they're all fantastic. Uh, this was a movie that I tweeted afterwards. Um, there's a really good argument to be made. I think that Julie Walters is the best actor on the planet. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, because I was just sitting watching her, going, "Christ Almighty, this woman's been doing this for forty years now. Mm-hmm. She could do, as far as I can tell, any accent. She can do, as far as I can tell." any genre mm-hmm. she can do comedy she can do drama and the same person who does that incredible Mrs. Overall uh, spilling all the soup bit of physical <laughs> comedy in uh, in Victoria Wood I've seen on TV can play a, a mother with real soul a real heart and again an impeccable Scottish accent mm-hmm. uh, in this movie as well I, I just think she's incredible she's a bit of a national treasure and I know she's a dame but I feel somehow she's uh, kind of underappreciated yeah mm-hmm. She should be Damier. I mean, I don't know how we. I don't know how we achieve that. Can we telegram the Queen again? Can you double Dame him? Can you do that? Dame Dame Julie Walters. Dame Dame Julie Walters. Why not? It has a ring. She it can. Does, uh, she can also sing Chickatita by Abba under a toilet stall <laughs> door, um, which I don't think should be overlooked in these. Uh, Who can't, Ben? <laughs> Who can't? She can teach Billy Elliot ballet. Come on. Yeah, there's nothing she cannot do. Send her in against Thanos. He'll shit himself within seconds. Also, a lovely little performance from Sophie Ocanedo. Yes, as, really good. Um, as Rose's sort of uh, employer. Mm-hmm. Um, she takes her on as a cleaning lady and then becomes kind of her champion. And it's, it's just a really lovely little mm. turn from her. It's kind yeah. of slightly insecure, not sure what she's doing, but very well-meaning and enthusiastic. It's really lovely. Yeah, absolutely. But what I will say as well is as well as thinking that Julie Walters may be the best damn actor on the planet. This movie, and we're only a couple of movies into Jesse Buckley's mm-hmm. career, made me think that Jesse Buckley could become the best damn actor on the planet in the next few years if she continues on her current trajectory. You know, amazing in Beast. Yeah. Amazing in this. Yeah. She could sing. She could dance. She wants Batman's head in a lance. There's all sorts of stuff going on. <laughs> She's just terrific. Yeah. I, I haven't seen her be bad in anything. She was good in um, uh, Tom Hardy TV show. Um, Taboo? Taboo. She was great in Taboo as well. 
So yeah, I mean, just props all round, basically, including director Tom Harper and my friend Johnny, who did a couple of days on focus pulling. <laughs> yeah, really. I've got a friend who's a focus puller. I actually thought the focus was a bit off in this. How movie. dare you? He was only there for two days. Yeah, there were a couple of shots that I thought were a little <laughs> bit ropey, out of focus, in fact. Outrageous. Lens cap was still on. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> How dare you? So we gave this. What do we give this? We give this four stars. Four stars. We gave this four stars. Four stars then for Wild Rose, and I am in agreement with that. Next up, Ben Travis will tell us all about the directorial debut of one Jonah Aloysius Hill. It is mid 90s. It is. It's mid 90s, and it is a lovely, lovely coming of age story about a kid called Stevie, uh, played by Sonny uh, Suljic. I'm terrible with pronunciation. I'm sorry if that's wrong. In uh, fact, the pronunciation, the pronunciation was not great. It, there. Wasn't, I, I... it wasn't good, was it? <laughs> <laughs> you were hoping I hadn't noticed, but, but I did. Yep. Uh, but he was the kid in Killing of a Sacred Deer, if you were traumatised by that movie. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> he is having a better time than he yeah. was in Killing of a Sacred Deer but he's still having uh, some trouble so he's about 12 13 years old uh, living in LA his older brother played by Lucas Hedges kind of constantly beats the shit out of him and he's just in that like awkward stage but he meets a group of skaters and he starts hanging out with them and they kind of take him in and it's it's that kind of movie it's that coming of age finding your people getting a new outlook on life, yeah. finding your tribe. And this is very much inspired by Jonah Hill's childhood and, and adolescence, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It, it just feels very him generally in terms of the choices of the cultural references and the music. It, oh my God, the soundtrack to this is incredible. Loads of like amazing 90s hip-hop stuff. Uh, the incredible Surf UK version of Wave of Mutilation by the Pixies. There's a, a scene where he's kind of got his board for the first time and he's trying out a few tricks and just constantly falling over. It's like a montage of him falling over over and over again in front of the family house mm. um, set to yeah this alternate version of a Pixies song. But as soon as that was happening, I was like, I'm so in on this. So it's amazing music and it's just really, really well observed for especially for his um, Jonah Hill's debut film. It feels really confident. It's very stylistic. It's shot in that kind of boxed off ratio, very intentionally kind of lo-fi film stock um, mm. but also in the in the choices that it makes there are so many scenes in this that just feel so real and um, so even though Stevie kind of yeah gets seven bells knocked out of him by his older brother mm. there's a scene at the start of the film where he, he sneaks into his brother's bedroom uh, while he's away and he's just kind of like rifling through the CDs and writing down notes of all the things that he should be listening to. It's this like shrine of, of things that are his kind of gateway into the world. But then also when he meets these skaters, he finds a sort of another way of life and you start to see shifting perspectives on the characters. Sounds a little like Sing Street in a weird way. Um, It is, except a lot meaner because Sing Street was like, <laughs> your brother can be the best person in the yes. entire world. Yes. Whereas in, in fact as well, shout out to Lucas Hedges because he's not actually in the film that much but what he does in those scenes at first you kind of hate him he's these like horrible character but then you start to see him in a different light and he plays that incredibly. But also the thing that's great about this is the group of skate kids that, that Stevie meets, they affectionately name him Sunburn, they all have different nicknames uh, so you've got fourth grade and fuck shit who has that name because every single thing that happens he starts a sentence with fuck shit which sounds like it could be lame but it feels really kind of real and naturalistic which i think big props to jonah hill for that um is big props one of the characters yeah he's one of the other ones actually (laughs) but all of those characters in the group are really nicely fleshed out and you get the sense that for stevie this is like a world that he is 
visiting and being enriched by but also won't be his entire life whereas some of the other kids it really plays into um the sense of privilege that um there's a character called ray who's the sort of leader of the group and for him like skating is is his life it's his way out it's his they're all in kind of worse circumstances than, than Stevie, who's not from a massively well-off family, but they mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. they get they just about get by. Whereas a lot of these kids have nothing, and skating is either their escape or it's the thing that they could do that's going to kind of get them some kind of career. And I think it plays that beautifully. I think the only thing is there's some kind of plot constructs towards the end that don't quite ring true, and I think that's because so much of the rest of it does. But the final five minutes of this film just put the biggest smile on my face, and I think it's probably my favourite thing I've seen this year so far. I, I, I love this film. I really love it. And if you love things like Link Later, if you love Days and Confused or Everybody Wants Some, I know a lot of people have compared this to, to Kids, the Larry Clark film. Mm. If you saw things like Skate Kitchen and Minding the Gap recently and you're liking that kind of skate-focused coming-of-age film, absolutely go and see Mid-90s. Um, I really love this film. Rad, dude. Awesome. Yeah. Cowabunga, etc. Gleam that cube. <laughs> and I'm out. That's it. That's it. Genuinely, that's it. Tony Hawk. He dragged, yeah. a, fr- he dragged a fridge around Ireland and then he did some... He did like a 720. Not quite. Didn't he? No? no? Okay. All right. Uh, four stars then. Four stars then from mid-90s. Ben says it's the best film he's seen this year. Now, I would wager you would not be saying that had you seen Hellboy. <laughs> the reboot, the latest version of Hellboy. Guillermo del Toro made two Hellboy films back in 2000 and... Wait a second. Four. Four. 2004. 2004? Yep. Yeah. First one, 2004. Yeah, and then Hellboy 2's 2008. Oh. Yep. Yeah, the passage of time is a cruel mistress. I wasn't said of both of those. <laughs> Hell, man. Anyway, well, so um, so there's a new Hellboy out. Yeah. And uh, this is not directed by Guillermo del Toro, who obviously there was some contentious circumstances and we weren't sure whether he was going to come back and do a Hellboy 3. And then he didn't. And now they have a new director, Neil Marshall, and a new Hellboy, David mm. Harper, taking over for Ron Perlman. And a Helen... Mm. You've seen this. Yeah. We haven't. And mm. there was only one screening of this movie. Mm. And it was on Wednesday morning. Day before release. Day before release. Mm. Sometimes that's not a great sign. Sometimes mm. there's no K sign. For example, Endgame's not going to screen too much before it comes out. Sure. Which yeah, is it? No, it's it's the other kind. Of oh. I'm afraid. Uh, this is this is not great. So uh, we, we start in 5th century England where King Arthur beheads the Blood Queen... Nimue, played by Mila Jovovich, with some weird kind of like dubbed over voice thing. I don't know what's happening there, but it sounds odd. So she obviously gets chopped into bits, but still is alive. And when the bits get reassembled in the present day, well, David Harbour's Hellboy basically has to take her down somehow. Um, The thing is, it's not a good film. The script needed at least one more pass, and let's be honest, probably two or three. Uh, I think David Harbour is great in the role, actually. I think he's really, really good. It's a different thing to what Ron Perlman did. He's a lot angrier. He's a bit hairier. There's a lot more cursing, obviously, because this is an R-rated film and they are desperate for you to know that it's (laughs) R-rated. I mean, they literally say fucking in the first 30 seconds as a crow pecks out a dead eyeball of a corpse. Right. Like, they are so keen that you understand that it's super gory and violent now. This ain't your parents, Hellboy kids. Yeah, this is cool. I mean, just, like, get a grip. Well, that's that's interesting, right? Mm. Because I, I don't remember there being that much swearing in the Mike Mignola comic books. Is there? I, you know, unless I just kind of glossed over. I, I, I read a lot of Hellboy back mm. in the day, but 
I, I don't I think really, of it I've being. A, I don't think of it being a huge part of it. Maybe it was more the the sort of the the violence and the the ability to kind of go to the edge that way that they were worried about, and then the, the swearing is just a bonus. I don't know, but yeah, as good as Hellboy is, I, I feel like the problem here is he doesn't have that team around him to bounce off in the same way. Like obviously he has Ian McShane as his sort of father figure, uh, but. Ian McShane is, is kind of, he's played this role a million times and it kind of shows at this point. And both of Hellboy's kind of sidekicks are, are sort of handicapped because um, Sasha Lane, who is so great when she's given room to work, is saddled with this English accent that seems to have consumed her this time. And, right. and all she seems to be focusing on is trying to get the accent right, which I'm afraid she doesn't. But also that, that then gives her no nothing to work with. Her lines are the worst in the film. And, and maybe she could have delivered them better if she hadn't been worrying about the accent or maybe they were just uh, bad lines that no one could have saved. I'm not sure. Okay. Daniel Day Kim is great, but he's so busy keeping a secret from us um, <laughs> that we don't see why he's being so standoffish until super late in the day, which I think, again, kind of hampers your ability to really connect with him. Um, there's a lot of little fan service nods here mm-hmm. and there, but maybe just... It just doesn't really work. I think almost unforgivably for an English director. And Neil Marshall can be great when when he has the material to work with. But this does that thing that American films do, where there are only two types of people in England and in the UK. There are the super rich people and there are the cockneys. So it's basically stately home or council estate and nothing in between. And I just find that incredibly irritating. And so that didn't make me warm to it either. So. Talking of warming to it, because I haven't mm. seen this yet, but in the mm. run-up to it, I rewatched both of the uh, Del Toro films, which I have a lot of affection for, and they are—they have their kind of horrific moments. I, I think I'd forgotten how intense the um, Tooth Fairy sequences in, in oh, yeah. Hellboy Two, mm-hmm. where they're kind of literally like pulling people's eyes and grabbing yeah. teeth out of people's faces and Proper. stuff in a, in a twelve A and everything. Um, no f bombs though. No f bombs, yeah. and but it's it. They are charming. They are warm, yes. charming films, mm. and. Beautifully My favorite fil- favorite scene in in Hellboy Two is when Hellboy and Abe Sapien get drunk and sing Barry Manilow. It's it's like it's such a lovely moment, yeah. um, and it has that tenderness to it. And it it but seems there's... from the trailers and things that this is is lacking that. Yeah, I would say that's true. I mean, Hellboy gets drunk, but he gets drunk on his own, and he's an angry drunk, for example. Oh. Um, I mean, there is I think something that must be a deliberate nod to Del Toro, which is that we start in Tijuana with a sort of Mexican wrestling match. And I f- that feels like a deliberate sort of homage of some sort. But it... it mm, no, I just... I was bored, and I shouldn't be bored oh, in a, a film shame. like this. That's a shame, because I had seen some footage of this, um, and I thought, actually, it was, in- was encouraging and promising and showed... Because the Del Toro films are great. They didn't do huge box office, which is why, obviously, there wasn't a Hellboy mm. 3. But in the one-for-them, one-for-me dichotomy of a person's career the Hellboy films don't really fit into that neatly for Phil Del Toro because they are both one for them and one for yeah. him. He mm. loves monsters. And, he it, loves and it comes monsters. across yeah. in every frame. They're so meticulously designed and beautifully lit and well acted. Ron Perman's fantastic. And there's such a a real affection for those films that I was hoping that this film might in some way might match them. But it's, it's a real shame. Uh, I hope I'll be able to see it this weekend. But... <laughs> Very, very sad to hear that. Uh, two stars. Two stars. Two stars then for Hellboy. And then very, very quickly in Dispatches, we should also mention two other films, Little mm-hmm. and The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, which gives Sam Elliott a long overdue lead role. 
Yes, it does. And um, so just to take the latter quickly, from that name, you might be expecting a sort of, you know, exploitation. Bubba Hotep. Yeah, a sort of monster movie, essentially. And it's really a very somber character piece about a guy who did violent things during the war and was extremely good at them. Um, but has never really learned how to kind of reintegrate into society and who lost a lot doing that and has never come to terms with that loss. And he's now a loner and he's kind of embittered and he's just very separated from people and he, he's he's hurting, he's traumatised. And then he's called back into action to face this new threat, this sas- Sasquatch which threatens to unleash a plague on humanity. So the title is technically accurate but entirely misleading at the same time, basically. <laughs> um, Sam Elliott's great, the film is a little bit patchy around him. Um, okay. Aidan Turner plays his younger self um, and does an okay job. He doesn't do an impression, but he tries to get a little bit of a f- Sam Elliott flavour. Does he have a there. big tash? No, he doesn't. I think just because there's only one of those tashes, mm. you can't really, you can't really mess with. Does that. a tash get a backstory? <laughs> like, why would you grow a tash like that? Why would you not have a tash like that and then grow a tash like that? Why would you not have just you start not off seen with a tash? That? Oh yeah. Well, maybe he didn't know that how glorious the moustache would be. I think there's something to it. Anyway, so yeah, that that's it's an interesting film rather than a must-see, but if you like Sam Elliott, it's got a lot of Sam Elliott for you. And then Little is a film that was pitched by Marseille Martin from Blackish, I think when she was 10, and she becomes the youngest credited producer, I believe, in Hollywood history, which is astonishing. And she is fantastic in this. So this is basically Regina Hall plays Jordan, who is this... Um, tech company owner and she gets transformed into her 13 year old self who's played by Marcy Martin they're both great Issa Rae who plays the put upon assistant who becomes the sort of mentor figure and kind of friend to the younger Jordan is also fantastic I've nothing against the the leads at all I just find this a little bit uneven in its comedy and definitely too long. It's the guts of two hours. And if it was about a half hour shorter, I think it would be significantly Mm. funnier for me. Isn't it weird how we're seeing two sort of riffs on big in in cinemas within two weeks of each other between uh, Little and Shazam? It's both big if superhero and big if the opposite. Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Hmm. Bigfoot and then Hitler. Whoa. Whoa. No, that's the other way. No, I got it wrong. Anyway. And Big Red. And Big Red. Oh, my God. What was the other film out this week? The Mid-90s. One Wild Rose. Um, big Wild Star. Rose. Big Star. Big Voice. Yeah. Big everything. Great. Well done, everybody. Three stars. Three stars for Little. Fantastic. And that is it. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us, but not me. Crucially, I cannot stress that enough. Uh, next week for more film-related fun, when we, when I say we, I mean... Me. You, and maybe you. Maybe me. But definitely not me. We'll be joined by Andrew Scott, Ooh. star of Steel Country, and Neil Jordan, Ooh. <laughs> co-writer and director of Greta. Both Irish. Yeah. Big fact. Taken over. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, until then, until a auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye. From Ben Travis. Cowabunga, dudes. (laughs) What? I don't know. (laughs) I enjoy your sign-offs, Ben. Thanks. It keeps me alive. There are three things keep me alive at the moment. What are the other two? Do I want to know? Well, you can guess. I mean, one of them is the... um, Endgame. Endgame. And the other is the new Pope picks? No. No? Football. Okay, there Uh, are four. There are four things keep me alive. Uh, It is goodbye, from Helen O'Hara. Doodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I am, as I said, off down the beach tomorrow, 2pm, tighty whities 
nips out the whole kitten oh. caboodle. Follow me on my Instagram, Snapchat, slide into my DMs for more information. But basically, 2 p.m. beach round the back of Asta. See you then. Thanks for listening. See you in three weeks. Bye. 